journey within Harlem of the West. This is part two. Featuring within this episode is Elizabeth Pepin Silva, the co-author of Harlem of the West with Lou Watts. This is the Buddy Bing Show, and I'm Lance Burton sitting in for Buddy, and I am pleased to be able to present this part two of Harlem of the West. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Elizabeth's journey because it does take some curves and goes over some hills and valleys. And Elizabeth has brought some really bright stories that she collected during the journey. So let's get right to it. This is Elizabeth Pepin Silva's journey into Harlem of the West. Do you know uh, uh, your own uh, Slim Gaylor? Did I, I know him personally. I'm, I'm 39, so I'm pretty young. Okay, so well, what I'm, okay well, then what I'm asking is... First, I want to make sure I get the, the exact right spelling of your name properly. So if you could spell out your name, please. Yes, I certainly will. My first name has eight letters in it. Okay. The way that I'm going to tell you how it's spelled is... I'll just give you the eight letters. Okay. F-E-D-E. R-I-C-O. Okay, and then how do you spell your last name? Okay, as in the guy who wrote uh, Don Quixote and all those wonderful things, Cervantes? Yes. Okay, nine letters. C-E-R-V-A-N-T-E-S. Do you know uh, uh, your own uh, Slim Gaylor? Did I, I know him personally. I'm, I'm 39, so I'm pretty young. Okay, so well, what I'm... This okay, well, well, then what I'm asking is... But I do know who he is as a musician. Yeah, you you know who he is. Yes. Do you did you also know that he was once the owner of Bob City? Right. He ran it as Bout yeah. City. That's and then he right. Off. Absolutely, Bout City. Right. Oh, Bout City. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, and then also, did Matt Cole have it too? I didn't know that. Matt, Matt Cole had it uh, had it uh, first. Matt King Cole. Oh, yeah. Right. Just a minute. I'm trying to think who had it first. Yeah, I think, yes, Nat had it, I think it goes in this order, Nat, Slim Gaylord, and then Jimbo. Huh. What was Nat Cole doing in San Francisco? Well, what he, uh, whatever he does in other cities. When I started my research in the film work, I was 22 years old, and uh, now I'm almost 56. I don't think I really knew what I was doing in many ways when I first started. You know, I was I was just so excited to uncover this history that I didn't know before. I think my excitement and probably my naivete about what I was uncovering gave me the, the courage that maybe as an older I wouldn't have done, which is just to simply start walking up to people and talking to them. You know, I look back on it now and it's like, what did people think of this, you know, I I still wear like wacky vintage clothing, this, this almost six foot tall white girl in weird clothes walking up to them and, you know, asking them if they had been to the clubs in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But I, I always, people always were so generous with their time and with their stories and gracious. I, I'm forever indebted. It was, it was so kind of them to react in the way that they did. And it was just this treasure hunt that just kept unfolding before my eyes. And, you know, I, I wouldn't do it all the time. I would, I would you know, come, come back to it. I moved away to, to 
to London for a couple years after the Fillmore Auditorium was condemned right after the earthquake, and then I came back. So it wasn't this linear journey um, to uncover the history, but it was something that continually called to me. And I felt it was a mystery that needed for my own intellectual satisfaction. And as someone who is very interested in history, especially San Francisco history, and obsessed with blues, R&B, jazz and soul music, I just wanted to hear the story. And I figured if I wanted to hear the story, other people would probably be interested as well. And then just realizing that the devastation that I saw as a child, and then, of course, when I first got my job at the Fillmore, there were still quite a few empty lots. The Fillmore Center was just starting to be built. So that whole area around the Fillmore Auditorium was still pretty much empty lots when I first got my job. And understanding why those empty lots were there and the profound loss, not only for the people who lived there, but I felt for the entire Bay Area of redevelopment, taking that away was just tragic and just so unfair. I just just was extremely disturbed by the unfairness of it all. Yeah, I mean, well, it all started with when I got the job at the Fillmore Auditorium in 1986. So I'd been working at a record store called the Used Record Store out on 9th and Irving. Okay. We that store, and it, the guy that ran it was the manager, Bob Stuber, had been a reporter for San Mateo paper and also for the Chronicle for a little bit, and he mainly covered music, and so... He was pretty connected to the music scene. And at that time, I was actually running illegal clubs, booking ska and R&D bands that were like kids my own age having those kinds of bands in warehouses down the South Market. Because at that time, South Market was totally abandoned. I did it once in the Fillmore at the old uh, Berkeley Farm Distribution Center. <laughs> but I kept getting in trouble. I kept getting, the cops kept coming. I, I kept getting warnings. I finally got arrested. And Bob was just like, look, you got to do, you have this really great idea, but you got to do it legitimately. You, you can't keep getting arrested, man. You're, next time they arrest you, they're going to throw you in jail. Like, you can't, and they, they told me as, as much. I was like, yeah, you're right. I know. So he said he had a, his friend, Gene Catino, worked for Bill Graham and he'd ask her if there was any jobs going at any of the clubs and sure enough they needed a day manager at the Fillmore Auditorium and I interviewed and got the job and it's kind of hard to believe that they handed you know a 22 year old keys to this historic nightclub I see I look at it now I look at my my nieces at 22 and I was like oh my god who does that (laughs) yeah yeah but they did, yeah. and I would go in the morning and open up the club, and I'd help do the books, counting the money, and count the ticket sales the night before, and all the bar sales, making sure that the bands got in, did their sound checks, making sure everyone showed up for work, and then, you know, handing it over to 
the general manager for the evening shows, and a lot of times I'd stick around and watch the shows. It, yeah, it was insane. I mean, from 1986 to 1989, I saw almost every show that was at the Fillmore. And, you know, anything, any band from Duran Duran and Iggy Pop to Pharaoh Sanders and, you know, the Neville Brothers. I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah. It, it, for someone like myself at that time, it was, I was a kid in a candy store. I mean, sure. the, the music, the, the musicians that I was surrounded by at that time was just, I'm so grateful to Bob Stuber for for realizing that I needed to do something more than just be a clerk at a record store while going to San Francisco State. So, Bill, I used to have a 1960s Lambretta motor scooter that I'd ride to work. Bill Graham stopped by one day and he's like, whose scooter is that? And I said it was mine. And he said, I can't believe you have that scooter. I When I first started booking the Fillmore, I had the exact same scooter. Really? Yeah. And and he's like, it really took me aback when I drove up and saw that parked in front of the club. And so he started asking me a bit about myself and and I, you know, I was telling him kind of my background and how I was going to study journalism at State and all that stuff. And he said, you know, I really would love to have you do a booklet about the history of the Fillmore Auditorium and also curate some photographs of the building pre, you know, before I came into it in the, in the late 1960s. Do you think you could do that? And I was like, sure, that was fantastic. I'd love that. So that's when my job expanded to being the day manager and the historian of the building. And that research that he had asked me to do is when I finally understood why those empty lots were surrounding the nightclub, the rich and vibrant musical history that had been obliterated by redevelopment, as well as the the amazing community. And so that's what started it all off. It's actually Bill that gave me the opportunity and pushed me towards research. That's just simply incredible. I mean, it, it obviously was meant to be. I also sense that you were having some, I don't know if it could be considered resentment or if people were just reluctant to, here's a, here's a young white girl coming up in the, in the hood wanting to know the story about what happened. Well, don't you know what happened? Your people like ran us out of town. Did you get any of that? There is definitely occasion, occasionally that did, did happen. Uh-huh. But I'm actually surprised it didn't happen more. To be honest with you, it's surprising to me how kind people were to me mm-hmm. and how generous they were with their time and willing to talk to me about some pretty painful things. I mean, I definitely had more than a few people break down in tears mm-hmm. as they're talking about an extremely painful part of their life, losing their home, losing their business. Yeah. And yet they were still willing to talk to me about it. And I'm, I'm just enormously grateful. And I did ask some people, say, who the hell, you know, <laughs> you, should, you shouldn't be capturing our story. And I understand that as well. Yeah. But no one else seemed to be doing it. Right. So many people have passed now that if I hadn't, those stories would have been lost. I just happened to be interested in 
be there at the right time. And and had John Handy, Earl Watkins, Frank Jackson, these men that were, you know, not only shared their own story with me, but then introduced me to other people as well. It's also why when I wrote Harlem of the West, I made sure that it was the people who I interviewed it was their voices that told the story rather than me like writing like you would in a traditional journalistic sense where you'd write the story and you'd put in quotes from people. I wanted it to be entirely in the people who lived the history in their voices. And how old are you and um, where you were born? My name is Frank Fisher, born in October 18th, 1926 in Huntsville, Texas. And how did you become a musician? By accident. At my school, we had separated schools. There was a white high school, a black high school, and a white college in my hometown. Sam Houston State University was the college. And we never had a, a music teacher. Our principal talked to super, district superintendent and they'd given us, given us some instruments. They announced one day at school, say, anybody that wants to join the band, uh, be down to room 302 or whatever the room was at, at 315. So my class wasn't out until 330. So when I got there, everybody in the room had a horn. <laughs> Nobody couldn't blow a damn thing. <laughs> but he's sitting up with a horn. So there was a guy that was sitting in front of me. I tell him he caused me to play trumpet. But he had a trumpet, so he had to leave to go home. He lived out on the farm. He had to catch the bus to go home at, at the quarter to four. So when he left, I picked up the trumpet. That's why I say it's by accident. <laughs> That's how I got started. As a kid, I always admired Duke Ellington. It was this back in 1972. Alan Smith, who was a very famous trumpet player in the Bay Area, one of the best, he called me and said, hey, Frank, you want to, I got a gig for you. I said, what is it? He said, playing with Duke Ellington. I said, oh, come on. Yeah, right. He said, no, I'm not kidding. Duke had been here, he'd, he'd been to Seattle. One of the trumpet players got sick when he was in Seattle, so he came to San Francisco, and somehow Alan Smith got the gig to fill in that for they had four trumpets. Alan Smith filled the gig, but they had a, had a gig at uh, up on Knob Hill. Anyway, Alan played it, but he couldn't make The next day they were going to be in Pittsburgh over, over here. California. California, right. And uh, it was, at the time, Duke was doing those religious uh, concerts, a lot of religious music. So that's when Alan called me because he couldn't make it over here. I'm only east, on this side of the bay. So <laughs> he, after he convinced me that he was telling the truth, he said, just go out there, see uh, Mercer Ellington, that's Duke's son, tell him you, you are my replacement. So I did. I found Ellington Mercer, and uh, he said, okay. Uh, he showed me to Cat Anderson, and he said, Cat Anderson, take him over there and show him what the music is, show him. Show him what his, where, his, where his uniform is, because all, we had, all I had to do was wear a white shirt and a black tie, dog pants, and they had jackets for everybody. Cat Anderson, a mercer, showed me the music. This is, this is what we're going to be playing. And I'm looking for some nice, clean sheets of paper with music on it. And it was so so dribbles, it scratch out here, go over here, go over here. So <laughs> we got, I was sitting with Cat Anderson, Mercer Ellington, and Cootie Williams, and myself, and the trumpet player. And I was so in awe. Because I grew up listening to these guys, you know. Johnny Hodges, Wild Bill Davidson was on organ, Duke was on piano. When I got on the, in the bandstand and started playing, I was nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> 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 
But uh, as we went along, Mercer said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. When we get to here, just go over there. I play, 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 get it. go down there. I said, come over here, stop it all around. And by, by the end of the concert, I kind of settled out. And after it was over, and I signed more autographs than than Cat Anderson did, <laughs> and I'm just a sub. <laughs> just played one night with Duke Ellis. <laughs> so, so when did you first hear about the film, uh, the neighborhood? Uh, well, you know, news gets around about where to go in San Francisco, and uh, uh, my cousin, who played drums, he was in the house band at San Francisco, Ray Fisher. He was in the house band at Bob City. I hadn't seen him for quite a while, and he, he said, well, cuz, come on over. And so I went over and kind of eased my way in there, you know. That's the night that uh, John Handy and Coltrane and Pointy Point Dexter. That was the first that, night No, that wasn't the first one. That we, I've been going there for a while, but that, it just happened to be that particular night that they took that picture. And that picture was on the wall for years and years and years. And when you decided to make the book, somebody chose that particular picture. I chose that picture. Okay. Because the guy said, you were standing next to Coltrane. I said, no, he was standing next to me. <laughs> now, I've forgotten who took it or how it got there, but every time you go to Buffalo, this picture was there. Remember what song you were playing when this picture was No, I don't. Or anything about Because no. I, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who he was in town with. Because... Anytime a group came to town, they, they were playing at the Fairmont or the Claremont. After they finished up, they would come to Bob City to jam. Because Bob City didn't open until like 2 o'clock in the morning. So Dinah Washington might be there, or, or Ella Fitzgerald, or anybody. If they were in town, they would come to Bob City. And they stayed there until 10 o'clock the next morning playing. Until <laughs> you got ready to go home. That's pretty when you went home. Sammy Davis Jr. would be there, Duke Ellington. Just anybody you can name would always come to Bob City after after they after their performance, wherever they were playing, they would come to Bob City. And they had Dinah Washington's name on the back of her chair, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald. And if you came and you were sitting in that chair and, and Ella or uh, Dinah came in, you'd have to get up. <laughs> That's the way uh, Jimbo had it, you know. What was Jimbo like? He was a nice guy. He was real, real, real stern, firm, you know. If you could play, He'd call you up. If you couldn't play, if he called you up and you couldn't play, he didn't call you no more until you go practice. <laughs> if he took me, I played drums with my no drum playing self. <laughs> that was that was in like 1953. But it eventually closed. I think it closed in '65. Steve Jackson Jr. I met when I was just started working at KQED for the R&D part of it. I was taking a taxi cab out to the Fillmore from KQED. Mm-hmm. And I just started talking to the cab driver and telling him what I was doing. And he's like, oh, I, I used to play cards with this guy who was a photographer for some of the jazz clubs. Wow. <laughs> you should talk to him. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds amazing. And I gave him my KQED card, and I stupidly... Uh got out of the taxi without getting, getting his, his contact information. Yeah, yeah. So for for a month, I just stewed about it. I was so upset. And yeah. I'm like, how can I find this guy? And then he called me at uh, work. Yeah. And he's like, I found the guy. He's been pretty sick. He just got out of the hospital, but he's willing to talk to you. Wow. Here's his phone number. So I called him up, and Mr. Jackson invited me over to hang out. Uh-huh. And... You know, I, 
he had a, a like a man cave down in the garage of his house in Hunter's Point. Uh-huh. He and his wife were super nice and brought me down into the basement and poured me a glass of this really terrible wine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it was so bad. Um, it was like ten o'clock in the morning too. <laughs> Once I guess I passed the test and he realized that I was, you know, sincere in my interest in uh-huh. his work, he pulled back the curtain that was along one of the walls and it was just floor to ceiling bookcases with all of his negatives and photographs. Good it, was, it was just incredible. And I left there, my husband came and picked me up and uh-huh. I immediately called Lou because uh-huh. by that time I, I knew Lou uh-huh. and I was like, you will not believe what I just saw. I mean, you can't believe it. So he, he made a date with Mr. Jackson and went over there, too. And uh-huh. So that's how we we both met. Wow. Uh, Jackson, Jr. Uh-huh. That's just gold. So can you tell me your name and where you were born, please? My real name is Palaya Ballington Davis. My stage name is Sugar Pie DeSanto. So I go for Sugar Pie. <laughs> and I was born in San Francisco. Do you mind saying what year, what, your birthday? Oh, why not? <laughs> 10, 16, 1935. Okay. What was it like to grow up in the Fillmore District? Was it a mixed neighborhood? Was it all African-American and Filipino? No, it wasn't uh, all one nationality. Uh, we were a mixed, <laughs> we were a mixed product. <laughs> we, we were all mixed. Every every race and religion you could think of, probably. And we even lived in the same neighborhood. <laughs> and did you all get along? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We made quite a, a bit of friends, good friends, you know. All our neighbors were a couple blocks down, was all different uh, races. Mm-hmm. What street did you grow up in? 1131 Buchanan Street. <laughs> That was my childhood. So you were right in the heart of the Fillmore. That's right, right in the middle. Do you remember the Fillmore at that time being at all musical? I mean, people, I've heard description of people saying that you'd walk down the streets and just hear music coming out of people's houses and on the door. Oh, I remember it, yeah. It was very, uh, we had all kind of music. I mean, you could walk down Fillmore Street and just all kind of clubs, you know, lined up one behind the other, and the musicians could gig all the time. You know, I mean, just music out of the doors, windows, people's houses. It was, it was, it was just music, music, music. As, as a child, did that? Do you think that influenced you? No, that didn't influence me. What influenced me was my mother. Well, she was a concert pianist, you know, at the age of five, and she could, she never read. She just was talented. She taught me a lot I know today about ballads and different things, you know. I used to sing with my mom. She played piano, you know, at home, and I learned quite a lot from her. Most of my family, uh, brothers and sisters, were talented. I had a brother that ended up in jazz. He was deceased which hurts. He was in jazz for years, and he went to Juilliard. He was very good. Now I have another brother uh, who has his own band, Domingo and Friends, and uh, he been in 25, almost 30 years. My family was very talented, but there's only about two of us that really went out there with it, you know, that really showed ourselves to do something about it. How many sisters and brothers do you have? I had six brothers and four sisters. 
Wow. It was ten of us. Mm-hmm. You talked about the Ellis Theater is where you got started. That's yeah, my very start. How did you go from singing at home to uh, the Ellis? Well, I used to uh, do the talent shows over there. They'd be every weekend, you know, from Thursday or Friday, however. And I would get on the talent show and I would win. Each time I went, I would win. And so Johnny Otis was in the audience. And that's how I got my career. He started it up. He discovered me, took me to Los Angeles, and uh, recorded my first record. And named me Sugar Pie. Well, the first time that you went to the Ellis, did you just go there to watch and said, I can do that? Or how did you? No, I went to the Ellis to get on the talent show. I knew it was around, and all those kids used to go every week, you know. So I said, well, shoot, if they can do it, <laughs> I'm going to try my hand, you know, because, and then my mom was teaching me at home all along, but not the blues, because we didn't have blues in my house when I was coming up. My mother was uh, standards, classic, and she taught me a lot of that, but my, but my friends on the outside, i you know, go to their house and we'd boogie. You know, I, I pretend to my mom I didn't know anything about it, you know. I'd be lying, in other words, okay. My mind yet turned to jazz. You know, I still love jazz. I liked uh, Dinah Washington and Sarah Vaughn, people like that, you know. We were recording, getting ready to record in the studio, and we got through a few tunes, and then he, he said, hmm, he just came up with it, he said, well, Pelaya, what, what name do you want? You know, he said, you can't go around talking about, well, here's Pelaya. <laughs> and, and I told him, I said, well, I have no idea because I was young, you know. And I said, how do I know? You know, he says, well, I'll tell you what. And I'll never forget his words. He said, you look like a little sugar pie. I said, what? So that's how you got the name Sugar Pie? Yeah, he was trying to think of a name to name me, and then he, he said, oh, you're so little, you, you, you look like a sugar pie. And that did it. <laughs> he said, would you like to record a record? I, I was about, what, 15? <laughs> and he saw me and he picked me up. He liked what I was doing. And he said I had a different voice, you know, heavy, you right. know, like, which uh, most women today, well, there's very few that carries this kind of heavy Eddie James, perhaps, you know, right. Gladys Knight, those kind of people. And, and we're, we're of the old <laughs> school, you know, we're the few left. Everybody's going up in the clouds to sing. <laughs> but we got that built, you know, real heavy in the basement. Mm-hmm. You're uh, quite a provocateur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me before I, I forget this and let this get away, because... Uh, you said you spoke with Frank Jackson. Tell me a little bit uh-huh. about your interaction with, with Frank. So Frank was one of those people that I met through Earl Watkins. Okay. And went out to his house when he lived in the Ingleside with his wife, Kathy. Yeah. Just the, the nicest couple. <laughs> I mean, Frank is just, Frank and Kathy are just such beautiful people. Frank was another person that just, whatever you need, here's photos I have, I'll sit with you for hours and talk with you, I'll introduce you to other folks. You know, when we started to amass quite a number of photos, and so many of them didn't have any identification as to who were in them, Frank sat with me on the couch at his house and went through them, and, you know, there's that person, and this is that person, and, you know, this was that club... You know, and then just the icing on the cake 
he would get up and go over to the piano and start playing. I mean, ah! oh my gosh, sing me a song. sweetheart of a guy and who were some of the others well leola king was funny <laughs> yeah I bet. she was one of those people that is basically said i don't want to talk to you go away why should i tell you my story yeah. you have no right to be involved in this mm-hmm. it wasn't until the book the first edition of the book came out i think that most people, I mean, nearly everyone that we got feedback from, there was a couple of people that, again, said, why, you, you, you know, why, why did you write this book? You didn't have any right to write it. But most people really liked how it came out. And Leola was one of those people. She actually, you know, after not talking to her for a couple of years, when the book came out, came and said, okay, you've passed the test. <laughs> Come down to my house my apartment building on Eddie, I think it was, and we'll talk. Then we became friends. She, she even made me, she used to love to make these slippers for people. I still have them. She made me these wonderful purple slippers that oh, I, wow. I still have. Huh. But, you know, she lost everything. She was the richest person in, in San Francisco for a period of time, and redevelopment took it all. And she fought till the very end. Mm-hmm. And I completely respect and understand why she was so wary of what Lou and I were doing. Mm-hmm. He had been screwed over so many times. Yeah. And people just took and took and took from her. Yeah. But I'm glad I passed the test. I really, I admire her a lot. I admire her still a lot. Mm-hmm especially as a woman, especially during that time period. Who else stood out for you? Earl Watkins, def- mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Was, you know, and, and what was amazing about Earl's story is that it covered both, you know, the pre-war Fillmore as well as, you know, up until modern times. Yeah. So he was able to give that perspective of playing in clubs in the, in the 30s in the Fillmore 
and, and actually at clubs all over San Francisco during that time, that, you know, a lot of the other guys were too young to have uh, done that. Yeah. And Vernon Alley was another person who was able to speak to that, which was was wonderful. Mm-hmm. So Vernon and Eddie were fantastic to talk with also. It's hard because, you know, I became friends with, with all these guys and almost all of them are gone. I mean, John and I still talk by phone every few months and Frank Fisher and uh, Terry Hilliard, but most of these guys are gone and it's just, I miss them. I miss talking to them. I miss listening to their music. I miss hearing their stories. You know, they, they were good friends. I'm grateful. I'm grateful I had that experience. Well, and those guys needed someone to come along and give them that benefit of telling their story. I have to believe that Steve Jackson sat around a long time with those photos, sitting there in that closet, just waiting for someone to want to give the glory to what that all meant. Did you get that kind of impression? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that that's, you know, in a way, my my cluelessness initially worked in my favor because I didn't really understand initially the impact that redevelopment had um, on people. You know, I got it like people had to leave and that was awful, but, you know, I'm 22 years old. Like, my, I, I wasn't sophisticated enough. I didn't have enough under my living, under my belt, to really understand what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so it never crossed my mind that asking about it might be a taboo mm-hmm. or I might be opening up, up something that didn't, people didn't want to be opened. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the people who had that experience, who had experienced having redevelopment come in and changing their lives forever, wanted to talk about it. Absolutely. They just didn't have a venue where they could. Well, and it really, I have, uh, you know, my, my research was kind of, you know, my, my thought was, okay, I could do a book or something like that, because it was pre-internet, or that didn't even exist when I was, was doing this. Yeah. Or I, I, could, I could write a story about it. But it really was, getting the job at KQED and Peter Stein wanting to make a documentary about it that gave me the focus that I needed, the, the push. So I credit Peter and KQED uh, completely for giving me that job and like, okay, now I'm seeing, I'm seeing where I want this, all this stuff that I've been gathering and seen where I want it to go and what I want to cover. Because I felt Peter had talked about redevelopment in a way that I still didn't think that I could, I had enough knowledge to do, even though it worked its way into the book, of course. But I also wanted to celebrate the men and women that I had met through my research and give voice to what many of them said was the best time in their lives. Yeah. And, and their talent, and celebrate the, the talents of, of these men and women that people kind of forgot about. And this is a fascinating story, Elizabeth, 
I'm so glad that you were able to connect with me and we're getting this story firsthand. The book is Harlem of the West, the San Francisco Fillmore Jazz Era. 220 lovingly restored images and oral accounts from residents and musicians. Captures a joyful, exciting time in San Francisco, taking readers through an all-but-forgotten multicultural neighborhood and revealing a momentous part of the country's African-American music heritage. Get this book. You want this book in your home. Your home isn't complete without this book. Now, I know you've collected these stories, and you've got them on your website at Harlem of the West SF, where our listeners can actually take in that website and enjoy more of the presentation that you and Lewis Watts have been developing. We're going to come back with part three on our next episode, so keep your ears peeled for that. Must acknowledge those interviews you captured, Elizabeth. Those were wonderful moments on Fillmore. Stories from the fresh young jazz talent of the Fillmore that John Coltrane made sure he stood next to on the bandstand. Frank Fisher, the irrepressible Palaya Ballington, also known as Sugar Pie DeSanto, and of course, the always ready and steady host and pianist and accompanist at the Ellis Street Theater talent shows, Federico Cervantes, and these interviews, along with more, can be heard on Harlem of the West SF.com. Annie Jamerson is coming to the planet Fillmore Orbit. If you recognize the last name, then you'll recognize her husband, James Jamerson, the formidable bass player for Motown Records. Many say he was the sound of Motown. But not only Motown, James Jamerson played on over 120 hit records during the heyday of popular music in the 60s and early 70s. She'll be on an episode coming soon. Keep your ears peeled for that. You don't want to miss what Annie will have to say about Motown music and James Jamerson, of our friends on Fillmore. Feel free to subscribe to the Planet Fillmore Orbit, and your feedback is always appreciated. You've been listening to the Planet Fillmore Orbit, powered by Planet Fillmore Communications. We'll look forward to visiting with you again next time. Diz, Slipped In Channel Puzo. Mm-hmm.